Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. This week my guest is Mark Bubbs, author of a new book Peak 40 in which he aims to share the new science of midlife health for a leaner, stronger body and a sharper mind. So let's crack on and hear from Mark. So welcome back to the show, Mark Bubbs, Dr. Mark Bubbs. Simon, appreciate you having me on. Doesn't feel like that long Always. since you were here last time. Yeah, no, it's, it's terrific. It's got nice to be able to circle back and, and dive, dive back into things. Well, I've recommended your book, Peak, um, the original book to everybody. And uh, that was the subject of our previous podcast, which I'll um, link to in the show notes. But today I wanted to talk about your new book, which has come out which is called Peak 40. So um, tell me a little bit about what was behind that, because I know you're 42 and I started thinking, I wonder if this is just Mark wondering about how he (laughs) needs to live his life for the next few years to, uh, to set up the rest of his life. For sure. Well, it's a little bit like that. I mean, effectively, you know, when I came out with Peak, that was a deeper dive into athletic performance and covering, Mm -hmm. you know, things in a really granular level. I mean, I think the audio book on Audible is about 12 or 13 hours. So it's, it's a long one. Um, but along the way, a lot of coaches and performance staff, you know, they're in, in midlife, 30s, 40s, 50s, and they're working mm-hmm. long hours. And it's really crazy and busy with kids at home. And they were telling me, listen, this is nice, but I need like the short form version. What what in America kind of called the Coles notes, right? The, the simplified version. And that was actually something that dovetailed a lot with the clients I see in practice, which I'm sure, you know, similar for you. And that oftentimes when we're we're struggling or we're not able to overcome these roadblocks, tend to look for more and more complex solutions, mm. right? Um, and so this is where I, you know, the idea around, okay, how do we, we can't give you all the answers, but how do we start to just provide these big rocks that can really keep the keep the car on the road, so to speak. So when things go off piece, we're not going to end up in the, in the too far into the trees. We can keep things more or less on track because we know there's going to be long hours at the office or sleepless nights or all these things are just a reality of, of the, busyness and madness of midlife so how can we start to to be able to provide some of those solutions so our you know clients can remember some of these things six months or a year from now versus it's hard to remember a lot of that granularity when we try to get too deep too quick i can still remember when i turned 40 i I don't i don't recall it being one of those oh no I'm so depressed now i was quite excited to get into my 40s because uh, for sure um it seems like actually that's the. I mean, I don't have children, so that's the point at which you start earning a bit more money and you've got a bit more wisdom. And when you combine those two, you can have, you can have uh, a much more enjoyable life. So I was a little sad to read in some of the first chapters that you talk <laughs> about the midlife happiness curve and that uh, for, up until you're about forty-eight, life seems to get a little less happy. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, yeah, researching the book. This is work by a professor David Blanchflower from Dartmouth University, who's an economist. And they were looking at happiness across the world, right? They looked at, I think it was 132 countries and and 15 different indices of happiness from fatigue and low mood, et cetera. And they actually found this pattern that remained consistent, you know, across all five continents. And it didn't matter the income level of the country or the income level of the individual. And this idea that, you know, happiness levels tend to peak around 18, 19, 20. And then we start this little bit of a decline. And then between the ages of 41 is when it starts to bottom out 
to 47. And that seems like a long stretch when you're, when you're hitting your forties. And again, it's it's called the U-shaped happiness curve. It it doesn't mean that we're all destined to be, you know, have lower mood in midlife, but it does sort of reflect, you know, it's definitely a period where, you know, the demands at work, the demands at home, Mm. whether it's caring for little people, caring for parents, you know, or what we call the sandwich generation who are doing both, then that sort of shapes the narrative of the book just because, you know, you don't have to be struggling with, with lower happiness in midlife, but this idea around mindset and that actually our attitude and our happiness is tightly intertwined with mindset, you know, and as you know, if we want to be able to achieve all these things that we have to achieve, because part of this whole story in midlife too, is we have a clear picture of what we, of what we sort of want and where we want to go. But if we don't start to train some of these mindset skills and really harness that, it's going to be tough for us to overcome these, these roadblocks and obstacles that are just a natural part of, of the madness of midlife. I had a quick speed read through the book. And firstly, I would like to say that it feels like your philosophy in this book and from chatting with you before aligns really well with mine. So I'm I'm, I'm good with that because it feels like it won't be too much friction today. Um, (laughs) There's things I keep coming back to that that we'll talk about as we sort of take a a bit of a journey through the book that, 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 about having a plan, about having rituals and routines. And I think if I can remember in my 20s and 30s, I just rolled through life. I used to go out drinking with my friends. I used to stay up late. I used to work out. I used to train hard, you know. And when I say I trained hard, I used to push myself and smash myself every time. Because yeah. back then in my uneducated way of, 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 of physiology, I thought, well, if I, if I go hard today, I've got to go harder tomorrow to keep getting better. But it, But it feels like, once you get into your 40s, you really do need to have a plan if you want to um, enjoy the second half of your life. And I observe that a lot of people don't have a plan. They're still rolling through life. Um, you know, they go to sleep without any thought about how to have the best sleep. They eat without any thoughts about what's going to be good for their health, what's going to be bad for the health. And perhaps in our 20s and 30s, we can get away with that. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't see the buildup of all those things that are happening in our body that are going to come back. Um, later, we we can eat and drink with impunity because we don't seem to gain any weight, and we recover from a hangover very quickly. And then in our forties, all the chickens come home to roost, and it's and that probably adds to this sort of um, lower level of happiness. Is that we keep getting all this bad news about? Oh, you're forty now, so you've started to lose your hair. Oh, you're forty now, so those trousers don't fit anymore. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's um, you know things add up over life. There's only, we only have so many good lifts in our body. And and this is where, you know, if you're more genetically gifted, or if you have really good range of motion, then then those number of lifts or those number of sessions can really extend on as we get to our forties, fifties, sixties. But I think, you know, for a lot of us, just, you know, the, the cumulative toll of whether it's the training, whether it's sitting at the office, again, whether it's staying up late nights with kids and everything else, you know, we're going to be kind of stiffer, tighter, if we haven't been eating well, then blood sugars are a little bit higher, inflammation's higher. So there's more of this noise going on and we just have less time to be able to train and eat the way that we want to. So we can't, and oftentimes that just means we start to then, you know, forget it. I'll just do whatever I like, or, you know, forget the exercise for a while. And we, people just tend to can easily kind of go off the rails and drift, drift off really. Mm. And so I think the big thing in when, and this could be anybody who's really busy. It doesn't have to be midlife. It just so happens that that's a period in our kind of thirties, mid thirties to fifties, where it really does ramp up is this idea of being efficient. Like, 
if you're used to training and particularly endurance athletes, right? If you enjoy training five or six times a week for an hour, an hour and a half, well, that might not be possible for stretches of your life. So how are you going to figure it out that you can only train? Maybe it's two or three times a week for half an hour. You know, can you do that? Hmm. Can we be efficient with that? Can we still make progress with that little training? And I think it's a nice exercise for everybody really, because whilst it's great to be able to get out and do as much as you can, to be able to figure out what that minimum effective dose is, right? Like how little do I have to do to still get a nice bang for my buck? Mm. Um, whether that's nutrition, you know, exercise mindset, that's, that's sort of the, one of the key themes across the book. Yeah. I like minimum effective dose is a phrase I've used. Um, sometimes you have to be careful these days with talking about that, don't you? Cause people immediately <laughs> think you're talking about a term taking things you shouldn't be taking. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, people will, get hold of a copy of your book and the first section they're going to read is called the downward spiral which is almost painted like oh this is the horror story you've got to oh, come here we go and uh, but then in marketing terms that's great because you create the problem and then you tell people how to fix it and that's what happens in chapters or sections two three and four really isn't it it's and and it's not really a you can see it as a a, a, a dark vision of what your life might be but you know we're in yorkshire we we we're straight with people. We tell them how it is. We can't, you can't paint up these things in, you know, fluffy colors and tell it life's going to be great. If, if actually these things are, are what's happened and, and what have been observed to happen through many generations in many different, you know, populations of people. Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky one. Cause like the current is pulling us all in this direction, right. Uh, of, of poor health and weight gain, right. We've got two thirds of the population are overweight or obese. We've got prediabetes, you know, on the rise and all these chronic conditions, which, you know, unfortunately in this last COVID year has really been amplified in the sense that if you are struggling with metabolic conditions, so poor glucose control, you know, high triglycerides, dyslipidemias, chronic inflammation, you're going to be, you know, at much more risk of, of succumbing, which is, which is awful really. And we sort of missed the boat in terms of this opportunity we had to galvanize everyone together over the last year in lockdown and, and exercise together and eat well together potentially. Mm -hmm. And instead, you know, it was fun, but we all sort of watched Netflix and drank wine together, which is, you know, which is all right, but I'll, I don't know if that's moving us in the right direction. And so this idea of like a current pulling us downstream, you know, the, the metaphor there is that if you don't start to swim a little bit against that current, I mean, you're going to get pulled into this direction. And when we talk about the mindset piece in midlife, you know, this is when you start to see low mood, depression, these kind of things, anxiety, and working with everything from like Olympians to professional athletes to everybody else in the population. I was, I've been amazed in the last 20 years just to see how much more common, you know, mm -hmm. that really is. And can we start addressing some of these root causes? I mean, medications can certainly be helpful. Um, but what are, let's go back to those big rocks. How are we eating? How are we moving? What's the, you know, the sleep and the stress piece look like? Because if we don't ever, you know, upgrade those, then we're always going to be, you know, chasing our tail or, or the, you know, the term in sport, you know, circling the drain of just always feeling like we're trying to get out of that, that downward spiral and come back out of it. I've used that um, analogy of the being washed downstream and, you know, it feels like when you're in your twenties and thirties, the stream isn't that strong. And so you can do very, oh, you can swim great in your twenties and thirties. And then, and then in your forties, the, the current starts to get a bit stronger. So you have to swim a bit harder to stay where you are. And then when you get into your fifties and sixties, you, you, you perhaps can't even fight against the current, but the stronger you are, the further up the stream, you'll be able to stay until you get and it. But if you don't do something about it, you're not strong enough to fight the current. And then you just get washed along by whatever comes your way. And, and that means that life isn't in your hands anymore. And I guess the, if there's one overriding um, 
one overriding principle of this book is that if it's easy, it's actually fairly simple to take control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with me approaching my 60s now, it feels like that the 40s are the times when we realize what, what our life's actually got for us, you know, because those things come home to roost. But it's also the foundation for the health that you have in the remaining parts of your life. And you've still got time to do something about it. Oh, 100%. And, and you know, this is where, again, in, in midlife, we are wiser and we have all these skills that we use in our professional life and in our managing our finances, et cetera. But it's an amazing sort of the, that human connection of when we're worried or anxious or thinking about the future of like, will I ever lose this weight? Will I ever be able to achieve? We get into this sort of state of anxiety. And and as we talk about in the book, that narrows your attentional focus. And now all of a sudden we're, you know, we're all falling victim to this. Well, I want to lose all this weight in 30 days. Or I want to have this rapid transformation. And, you know, we're in an Olympic year. And when you see these Olympians who are going to be doing amazing things in Tokyo, and you see the special or that hundred meter final, it looks like it was just, they just showed, they just showed up and did it right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't show you the four, eight, 10, 12 years of just doing this little yeah. thing yeah. and repeating that every single day. And that's the hardest thing for people to grasp is that the secret, you know, is not the fad diet or the latest exercise regime or whatever. The secret is just showing up every day and repeating. And, and we need to have the right mindset to do that because it's, it's not as sexy as having this crazy diet or this, you know, mm. regime, exercise training regime, et cetera. Right. And so I think that's where it really sets things up to say, Hey, if we can, if the expectations can be, you know, let's use six months, let's use a year to get to where we want to go and start to stack the wins rather than what unfortunately happens is people try something. And I'm sure you see this a lot. You try something, it doesn't work. Well, now we're going to go try this right shotgun approach. And then we're going to try this diet. We're going to try that diet. And really you're, the roadblocks are going to come no matter what diet you pick. Right. Mm-hmm. And so at some point we've got to face the roadblock and figure out what it is about our behavior um, that's holding us back because ultimately we're not able to really build in the habits that we need. If we keep putting on the 20 pounds again, or, or struggling to, to move enough or, or dealing with chronic pain. You talked in the previous podcast and in your book, peak about process and that's what you're talking about there really isn't it? it's about mastery of the process not not worrying about the outcome and the result that will come in one month two months four years five years it's about what you do today in a small amount and then repeating it tomorrow uh, you talk about weight gain there and weight loss uh, you refer to some longitudinal studies over 30 odd years in men and women about how much weight on average they gained I think, I think it was 28 pounds for women over 37 years, 21 pounds for men over 34 years, right? So I did some little sums there. Have you done the calculation and worked out how many calories those people are overeating each day to gain that weight? I haven't done that one. I mean, Dr. Kevin Hall's work had showed that, you know, even just the calorie, extra calories from snacking, which is in the order of yeah. 400 or so, it's know, about- enough to kind of justify that health, you know, the weight gain that we're in, but did you 40, have you done the calculation? Yeah, forty to fifty calories a week. Yeah, and I suppose that's going to sort of because yeah. we're using averages, it's going to skew things a little bit. But you know, yeah. the theme there being that it doesn't take much. If we're gaining if we're gaining a little bit of weight over the course of every year. Yeah, we don't sort of realize it, right? It's like the leaves changing in the fall; all of a sudden, they're yeah. not there anymore. Um, and so that's the idea of it creeping up on us. Like you get to whatever yeah. age it might be 40, 45, 50. And now all of a sudden, you know, everything hurts or you feel a bit achy and you decide, no, I'm going to go back and I'm going to exercise again. And then the first session out, 
your knee goes, your hamstring goes, your back's sore. Now you can't train for two weeks. Mm. And, and that's that sort of like stop and start that, you know, we really got to try to to work around and to get around because mm. if, you know, as you know, if you can't, if you can't show up every day, there's, it's really difficult to be able to hit those goals. And so, yeah, that idea of just gradually we're drifting off into this sort of moving less, consuming a little bit more, gaining weight. And with weight gain, we know blood sugars go up, inflammation goes up, your lipid panels, so your, you know, your bad cholesterol will start to be affected or your triglycerides. And so, you know, that, that's that part of the story there. Well, there's a couple of things there. As a personal trainer, it always used to frustrate me that individuals had come in having followed this pattern of gaining 20 pounds over 10 years, but they had to lose it in three weeks because they needed to be in shape for this wedding. And you'll see this as well, where people come along and say, right, I've decided I'm going to run a marathon in six months from nothing. So they're going from couch man to marathon man in six months. And the stress that that puts on you, the pressure in your head, the stress that it puts on your body to go from a standing start to that, regardless mm-hmm. of what your goal is. And again, we're focused on the outcome now, aren't we? Rather than, okay, so what I need to do is by the time I'm 60, I want to have my weight under control and I want to have good blood sugar control. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it, it seems like we as influencers need to be emphasizing the long-term steady approach with the process rather than the short-term quick fix, which is what happens when people are trying to sell programs and make money out of it. Um, well, that's, which, that's the social media. As one of the experts who I interviewed said, it's like a fart in a hurricane, right? Everyone just, you know, the, a massive amount of noise that we get is all about rapid transformation, which is completely at odds with what the best of the best are actually doing. Mm, and so yeah. it, it's so hard for people to make sense of those really disjointed messages. Yeah. Now we talked about blood sugar, or you mentioned blood sugar and blood sugar control last time in your book, you talk about constant glucose monitors. I've got one of those now I managed to get a Dexcom. So I'm nice. currently trialing that for a few weeks. Um, in my mind, actually blood sugar and blood sugar control and the sort of insensitivity that becomes of, of insulin if we feed it with too much refined sugars and processed carbohydrates, which we'll talk about later, is is almost a, a more worrying problem than weight gain because of what it what it can lead to and because it's hidden and we don't really see it because we can see that we put on weight, we can feel it because our trousers don't fit. Most people don't know that they can't aren't controlling their blood sugar until they start to get problems. And by which time for a lot of people, it's it's not irreversible, but it's going to take a lot of hard work to back out of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think we do ourselves a disservice, especially, um, you know, I appreciate that it's a common thing that people start to get up in the night to go urinate. Right. But we then we start to normalize it. Hmm. And and that's not a good thing because typically, yeah, if blood sugar levels are higher in our forties and fifties, then we're going to go to the bathroom more in the evening and when we're sleeping, right. And nocturia. So having to get up and go to the bathroom. And if we consume a little bit of alcohol, even a glass in the evening, then that might lead to more urination. And so sometimes when we're, you know, I mean, our GPs are seeing so many really sick people that when somebody comes in who looks quite well and just has a smaller problem, we tend to just dismiss it and say, well, that's, that's common. Don't worry about it. But it's still a, a sign, like a little light on the dashboard of your car that says, Hey, check the oil. Like we've got to, we've got to investigate a little further here and see what we're doing from a nutrition standpoint. Are we getting the exercise in, et cetera. And you know, when we talk about nutrition, one of the themes of the book with, with being busy is that we can't be making food decisions all the time. You know, clients to typically want, you know, all, you know, a follow meal plan or, you know, wondering what I should eat for lunch or for dinner. 
obviously that'll happen initially, but we've got to start to automate some of these things. We've got to have some options that we just naturally get up. This is your breakfast off you go. And you don't have to think about it. Um, and trying to get that in our work week as best we can to become, to become automatic because, you know, as we get more stressed and more busy and as we get through the day, our compliance goes down. And so, you know, one of the areas we talk about in the book is on late eating. And now <laughs> over 40% of the calories we consume come after 6 p.m. Yeah. Right. That's not a good thing. And of course, you know, that, that you know, it's great to relax on the couch, maybe watch some Netflix, have a glass of wine, but all of a sudden we don't realize how our environment starts to trigger these cues. And so now every time you relax on that same couch in front of the television, your brain is chattering at you like, hey, where's that nice bowl of ice cream or chocolate or or you know, beer, glass of wine. And all of a sudden, and again, this is through lockdown life. I think a lot of people experience this for, for the first time, maybe in their lives, they're now having a drink every single night of the week, right? Because that, that, that pattern is being set in. And so I think as humans, we don't realize how much we are creatures of habit and creatures of pattern. You know, we are just like Pavlov's dog. And so if we don't start to change some of those environments, then, you know, we're going to be stuck in those negative loops that just repeat themselves. Well, habits are things we learn, aren't they? We're all born the same, and then habits are layered onto us, given, and you refer to this quite a lot in the book, about the environment and the influence in the environment that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as a nutrition coach, I think we talked about this before, about the precision nutrition stuff I do. We, we talk about, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about giving people meal plans. It's just trying to get them to change their habits sometimes. And one of the biggest failings I think I see is that people don't plan what they're going to eat in a week. So they 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 you know, and you don't have to be so OCD that every single meal is written out with the ingredients, but you do need to, you do need to plan your meals with some structure so that you then know what you what food you need to buy from the store. So Mm. that then when you come to have those meals, you've got the right food in the house, because if you haven't got the right food in the house, then you're going to eat the wrong food that's in the house. And John Berardi, I think he's he's a friend of yours, isn't he, John? Yeah, John, fantastic guy. You know, he, he's, regularly saying if, if there's something in your house 100% guarantee that you will eat it at some point right so there's nobody exactly. who has the willpower to have a bar of chocolate in the cupboard and leave it there forever it'll get scoffed at some point usually on that week that week friday night when you've had a couple of glasses <laughs> of wine and you're watching netflix so and that's just just to jump in Simon, that idea of even willpower like clients will always say mm-hmm. if i just had more discipline if i could yeah. just have more willpower and again willpower and discipline are finite resources. We don't have an endless supply and willpower is not why that Olympian's going to make it to Tokyo. In fact, right. It's as you know, it's, it's once you go a little bit past discipline and you create the habits, you just do it automatically and it doesn't require willpower, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's automatic and that's subconscious. And now we can just, you know, go and do it. And when clients say to me, well, I don't think I can do that. I say, okay, well, when you sit in your car, what's the first thing you do? Put your seatbelt on. You don't even think about it. You're not inspired. You're not motivated. You're not disciplined. You've just done it so many times. It's an automatic reaction. And so we can all start to do those things in the positive direction, but we've got to, yeah, we definitely have to start, you know, automating, but also taking off that, that negative self-talk of like, oh, I just, if I just had more willpower, I don't know why I can't do it. Why did I succumb to that? And these are just all human reactions. And so I think we need to start helping people take the pressure off themselves because once we get into that negative again, headspace, as you know, well, how do we then show up tomorrow and still have the enthusiasm to be able to keep going? I was going to come to this at the end, but maybe we should do it now. Um, 
we talk, you talk about sleep quite a bit. You talk about exercise. You talk about environment quite a lot. You talk about nutrition. For me, sleep is at the heart of all of these because I think uh, certainly my own personal experience and that of observations of people I've worked with is that when you get good sleep, decisions, the, the right decisions, if you like, and the willpower, if, if we should choose that word, seem to be longer and stronger and last for longer. 100%. And when, when we don't have good sleep, then we tend to make, and there is a, there's an awful lot of evidence now. And I think um, we talked about wearing the whoop before, and I, on a recent podcast, they were talking about um, doing some work with a guy who's developing a whoop for the brain. And they've done some research which showed that when sleep was poor, decision-making was poor as well. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's when somebody says, oh, I just, I'll just have a couple of biscuits. I'll just have that piece of chocolate. When, when you're strong and you're on top of things, it's a lot easier to say no. And then, as you said, sure. You build that habit, so no becomes an instant response rather than you having to think about that and go, right, if I just need to be strong and take some deep breaths, I can resist. Well, that's just it. I mean, if, you know, talk about the autobiography portion of this book. It's like, you know, having little children at home. I got seven, four, and two-year-old. So, so there's stretches of months where I felt like I was in the Navy SEALs. You know, you get up at midnight, you get up at two or three, you get up at five, you're back up at seven. And this goes on for for weeks and weeks and weeks and you've still got to do everything in your day. And to your point, I mean, that's where, of course, the mindset's going to be impacted, right? I mean, this is, and so, you know, we, this is why we need to build those habits because when life really starts to get amplified like that, you know, not sleeping well, works crazy, mental, emotional things going on. We've we've got to be able to have practice some of those things so that we can actually perform because you know, even in the book, we talk about if you're, what is the first thing we do if we have a bad sleep? Well, the next morning you want to have that cup of coffee first thing to wake yourself up and really fascinating work by um, James Betts at, at Bath University around breakfast was this notion that after a really bad sleep, short sleep, if you have that cup of coffee, you get an exaggerated glucose response in the morning. Yeah. So even just delaying that, like giving yourself an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, have your breakfast first, you know, maybe a green tea or something lighter before you push the gas pedal down and have that cup of coffee. It's just a, a simple thing that you can do that will then set you up to make better decisions through the day because your blood sugar levels aren't going to be on that roller coaster of highs and lows. Hmm. Yeah. The uh, going back to the mind, the midlife happiness, you talk about emotions there and how, how much of an impact that has on it. And sleep has a, obviously sleep has a big impact on emotions. Mm-hmm. You talk about routine quite a lot. If we, you know, I, I did like in the last section of peak that bit about motivation, no, inspiration, motivation, discipline, habit. So you, mm. you, you, you see somebody else that's done something you'd like to do. That's your inspiration. Then you watch something on YouTube and that's your motivation or you play the Rocky tune before you go out training <laughs> Yeah, and then you develop discipline, but it, but, it, but over time, it's just the habit so that you get up at five o'clock to go swimming. You don't even think about it. The alarm goes off, you get up, your swim bag's ready, you get in the car and off you go to the pool. Yeah. And I, you know, I know, um, if you look at any of the elite athletes, people say, I don't know how they have the discipline to get up every morning. Well, like to your point, they don't. Well, they do, but it's a habit now. It's just like brushing your teeth. Nobody ever questions why you, you brush your teeth at seven o'clock in the morning when you've got up because it's a habit we built up since we were children. Yeah. It's like, are you really disciplined because you're brushing your teeth? And yeah. you know, I think on that note to what you mentioned there, Simon, I think the other misnomer is that people think that the athletes are just bouncing out of bed with joy and happiness. <laughs> At five in the morning, like they're, they're, they're swearing under their breath, just like you or I. The difference is, like you said, they're not in their mind going, should I get up? 
oh, maybe I'll stay in bed. Should I? You know, they're just going to get out of bed and get on with it. And for the rest of us, that's always the moment of challenge. And of course, our compliance is highest in the morning. So as tough as that decision is at 5.30 a.m., that decision is really hard at 9.30, 10, 10.30 p.m. at the end of the day, right? So let's let's finish off talking about nutrition then. You talk about uh, several things. You talk about the Nova system and how, how it's been criticized. But when I looked through that, I thought, well, this is this is very simple. And are people criticizing this because... It's it's just too simple because we actually need. I mean, nutrition's complex, but it doesn't need to be complicated. And again, to the mm-hmm. these transformation programs seem to want to make things really complicated. So you have to buy that program to understand it. When if 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 somebody goes along to John Berardi and he says, "Well, what do I need to do to get in shape, John?" Well, just eat real food, probably mostly plants, occasional meat. You know, um, yeah. And like, what is that? It. Well, yeah, but it's taken me 30 years of observation and knowledge to be confident to tell you that. Um, well, that's but- just, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the human body is a complex system. And by definition of any complex system, we will never know all of the inputs and outputs, right? It's not like mm. surgery even, or a computer algorithm, where there's, it's a binary ones and zeros choice. There's, there's this infinite amount of inputs. And so, you know, people are always going to be, especially at the academic level, right? Questioning and trying to build it out. But I think the Nova classification is tremendous in the sense that it reframes the question, mm. even away from the animal versus plant, which is sort of a, mm. a little bit misguided as well, because really it's the question is like processed versus unprocessed, right? And the proportion of plants or animals that you want to include, hey, you can figure that out or work with a coach and figure that out. But if you're consuming more unprocessed stuff, as we see around the Mediterranean, right? The Mediterranean diet is the default diet of choice in medical circles. Yet I, when I look at the map, there's 20 odd countries there. So how is it this one diet, right? But the, the common themes, when you look across those countries is this percentage of household spending on what we call ultra processed food, which to your mm-hmm. point is that group four, which is the stuff in boxes and bags, you know, in the UK and Canada and the U S we're over 50% of everything we're eating is coming from this stuff, which is really high in calories, really low in nutrients. And when you go around the Mediterranean, it's like 13% in Italy and 15% in France and 10% in Portugal and whatever, 16% some odd in Greece. And to your point, yeah, so it is that simple. Eat real food, right? Don't, we sort of scared people off even the question around animal protein and this and that. But I mean, to start with, let's just put more real stuff on our plate you know, and then we can, we can have those other conversations as we go, because people will then naturally, as you eat more real food, your caloric intake goes down and then you feel more satiated and then you you're consuming more fiber. So your blood sugars are more stable and more protein. All these things just happen as trickle down effects. And and so one of the themes around peak 40 is this idea of let's give you one small instruction that then leads to all these side benefits, if you will, rather than Mm. giving somebody that sheet of 25 action items and say, Hey, here you go. And clients oftentimes want that on the first visit. They want to feel like they're getting the most bang for their buck. So they want to have all these instructions, but really we we function much better when it's like, here's the one, maybe two things I want you to do. Go off and do those this week. Once you've shown me you can do them, well, here's next week. I'll give you another one. Right. And you, you've got a, a bit like martial arts. You got to work your way up through the belts here. We can't just presume that we're going to be able to integrate everything all at once just because we could do that in our work life or, or whatnot mr miyagi wipe on wipe off that's it you gotta wax on wax off wax on wax off 
it, going back to the unprocessed versus processed, um, you talk about that that whole red meat myth, and when people hear researched. Uh, that's probably misstated actually that, yeah, if you eat too much red meat, it'll lead to cancer. But of course, your point is that if you're eating a steak from cows that have been reared in the pasture, grass fed versus those cows that are, are eating sausage meat that's been processed and it's the poorest quality. I mean, there's def uh, there's some research that was shared to me by Kevin Currell, who was the lead nutritionist for uh, British triathlon um, in the Olympic program. Um, processed meat, takes two hours longer and puts an inf in takes longer to digest and creates more inflammation in the gut than um than really good quality meat so the, the, there's nothing wrong with eating red meat and in fact if you follow um paul saladino's carnivore diet he'll say well actually you should eat nose to tail if you're going to eat meat and maybe that's the best diet for some people but, but the point we should come back to here is the process, again, the process versus the unprocessed choice, isn't it? It's not whether red meat or vegetables are the best thing for you. Well, the interesting thing, Simon, when I do talks, even for doctors, I'll put up a food. I'll list all of the things <laughs> in that food, but I won't tell you the name of the food. Uh -huh. And then everybody votes whether that's a good food or a bad food. And then we put up the picture of the food. And of course... Every time we do that with red meat, everybody votes yes. And then you show the picture of the steak and everyone's, you know, sometimes gasping because we have all this oleic acid, you know, olive oil found in meat. And of course, the quality of the protein and the nutrients. And so, yeah, the hardest thing around nutrition is you have all this emotional connection to a lot of the mm -hmm. things that we eat. And that to a certain degree, that's good because it keeps us. That's one of the reasons why the European countries are stick to how they eat right in North America. We're so easily swayed because we're, we're a little bit removed from our, our cultural roots there. Um, but yeah, to your point, I mean, if a food has one word as the ingredient, <laughs> right? Like beef, egg, <laughs> broccoli, you're not going to go too far wrong, right? You're going to have a lot of benefit, a lot of nutrients. As soon as, as that ingredients list grows and anything that you're eating, mm -hmm. then the likelihood is it's going to be worse for you. Right. And so you know, and this is one of the reasons why even when we look at, you know, a plant-based burger as this healthy alternative, a burger is a burger, right? The, the plant-based burger has 35 ingredients as well. Now I was, I was vegan 20 years ago, so I totally appreciate the, the, the benefits of eating more vegetables, but Hey, let's eat some lentils. Let's have some beans. Let's include, actually eat some tofu or some tempeh in your diet rather than going, you know, if you're plant-based going straight to the processed stuff. And so yeah, that's that's the big take-home message there. I mean, if it's got one ingredient, go for it. For the most part, <laughs> I think I can't remember who it was who said if 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 it's got ingredients in that your grandma doesn't understand or doesn't recognise, then you definitely shouldn't be eating it. Well, that's just it, isn't it? It's like that idea of intelligence versus wisdom, where it's like yeah. all of a sudden all these things that are the science is telling us what to do, and you look at the plate and you think, "Geez, I think this is just what my grandparents were doing," and you know they didn't sort of know any better, but that was just what was. Natural and what you raised back then, it's like we, yeah. you know, we can make this thing, as to your point, more complicated than it needs to be. There's a lot of references I'm reading. Maybe it's just the sort of the the sources of them are talking about the Hadza tribes and some of the research that's been done around those. And um, they don't that they don't eat that many vegetables. They do eat quite a lot of meat. They um, they eat a lot of seasonal foods. Um, but I think that's probably because they're probably closest to the hunter-gatherer ancestral living, isn't it, than, than they are to the Western world. Yeah, and the Hads actually eat a, a heck of a lot of vegetables as well. Like They eat in the order of 80 grams of fiber in a day, which is 
you know, five, six fold what the typical person would eat. And so I think that's where, again, we, when we look at a lot of these ancestral populations, these hunter gatherer <clears throat> populations that are still around, you, you have a huge sway in terms of the diet. You go from the Inuit in the far North who are really having, you know, mm. high meat, high fat, very low carbohydrate, all the way to the more equatorial, you know, um, tribes, which are consuming animal protein, but still a lot of, a lot of vegetables. And it's, it's interesting on that note, because there is no tribe to anyone's knowledge that's existed. That's just only plant-based, right? There's always been some type of, of animal. And that's just to do with the ability to, for food security, right? If you've got a, a you know, uh, a cow, a goat, you know, chickens, then you, you know, you're not dependent on that. If that crop goes bad one year, you're, you're in trouble. Perfect example of how environment influences what you do, really, isn't it? Then that is if you live if you live in an equatorial climate where it's easy to grow, um, yeah, or pick fruit and vegetable, that's fine. But when when you live somewhere where you know seventy five percent of your year is under ice and uh, you can only catch you can only catch seals or or fish, then um, and vegetables aren't around, then there's not going to be any vegetables in your diet. Well, that's the thing too. And vegetables are obviously full of vitamins and minerals, but one of the things we tend to forget and, and one of the key themes of the peak 40 is this idea of set your protein. Like, mm-hmm. Let's get your protein to a certain amount. Let's repeat it through the day. And then you can sort of forget about it. You know, you can let it fade to the background and now shift your focus onto other things. And we, we tend to forget that as you increase your protein intake, you know, your vitamins and minerals, your, your intake of micronutrients goes up along with it. And mm-hmm. so it is like eating a multivitamin and that's Definitely, if it's animal based, but also if it's plant based as well. Yes, well, there is that theory, isn't there? That uh, if you're eating um, fish or particularly cows that are grazing, then they're just the middlemen for all the vitamins that we get from the vegetables we eat because they're consuming them anyway, and then we're getting them along with the other proteins and uh, amino acids. Hundred percent. That upcycling. I mean, they're noshing on grass for fourteen hours a day, so it's uh, yeah. <laughs> better them than me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, I think we've. We haven't got time to dive deep into nutrition, but let's talk about exercise because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a professional sportsman, it was anticipated that you would retire in your mid-30s. And yet we've seen recently with people like Tom Brady and uh, Drew Bees and, you know, in other sports that there are some guys now because of the way they look after themselves are able to excel yeah, at the highest level um, into their early 40s. And if there's one thing that I've learned is that, you don't have to change the training you do. It's the way in which you do it and the recovery you need. So um, you need a long warm up and a cool down. You need to space the hard training sessions out a bit more. So maybe you can't do them with 40 hours rest. You need 96 hours rest in between them. But I can still push out mm-hmm. um, efforts that are going to take me up to 95% of my maximum heart rate. You know, that's not that's not a bad thing for me. It may even be a good thing. Yeah. And, and you tend to start to call all those sessions that were sort of mediocre sessions that were, you know, in the gym, we call them like junk reps that are just, mm-hmm. you're doing things, but you're not really creating that signal that you need to create that adaptation. It's just sort of feeling good in the moment. We get some endorphins and all the, all those things are nice. But, you know, when we're really time pressed, I think the biggest challenge is sometimes you have to completely rethink how we do things. And so if we're used to going to the gym, warming up, doing 45 minutes and then cooling down, and you've only got 15 minutes at home, you know, you're not going to choose 15 to 20 exercises, or you're not going to have a chance to really get into the zones you need to for aerobic training. So it can be as simple as just picking one exercise. Like, all right, you got 15 minutes in the morning. Let's do some squats, right? Let's do sets of 10 or 15. Let's repeat those every minute, maybe on the minute for eight or 10 minutes. And that's it. There you go. Mm -hmm. Boom, boom. 
Now, the afternoon, you might have some more time. Maybe you do an upper body. So trying to rethink how you do things. And the cool thing, when we look at the research, you know, experts like Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, who's a you know world-renowned researcher when it comes to, to building muscle, is that that minimum effective dose is really 10 sets per body part per week, which is not a lot. So if you think you're doing some leg movements twice a week for five sets each, some push and pull, five sets each of those a week, I mean, you're there. And so we can be really efficient with that. And then to your point, if we want to have obviously that fitness and cardiovascular training, because, you know, that's so key for glucose control, supporting insulin sensitivity. It's really connected well with longevity. When we look at, you know, VO2 max as a marker for, for healthy aging. And so, yeah, where can we push the gas pedal down a little bit, but then maybe the next day we do that nice recovery ride, that steady state session, or maybe we just go for a walk that day. If we are feeling a little bit more beat up, maybe that's a nicer way to get our 40 minutes of movement in. And so we really have to train smarter, um, not, not, you know, I, I, not harder is sort of, I still want you to train hard to your point, but I just don't want the volume that we, that we used to have because it's just tough to get in. It feels like, I mean, Dr. Stephen Seiler has done a lot of research on polarized training and it feels to me like that's a way more healthy and sensible approach for long-term fitness. You can do the high intensity interval stuff, but you know, 10% of your total weekly duration or one session and then the rest of the training is below that aerobic threshold because you can still build mitochondria and i think we talked about mitochondrial function and we know that mm -hmm. from aging that's one of the things that's a real uh, um, problem in your 60s and 70s is loss of mitochondrial function and then loss in um, um, functional fitness and health you can build mitochondria with training at 60 to 70 percent so you can do a brisk walk and that's good enough you can do that sort of two-hour bike ride with your friends but it, but also training like that doesn't create the oxidative stress you get from working in the threshold and burning glycogen so you recover a lot more and there isn't as much muscle inflammation yeah and you can do it without having to overfuel too because i think one of the things and that you know we talked mm -hmm. about that more in peak as well but this idea of like well now we're doing all these intense sessions and now all of a sudden we think we're going to need all this simple carbohydrate to support those sessions and so you know, as we age, our glucose control does get worse. You know, I mean, if the healthier you are, that that progression's, you know, is is more gradual, and, the, and then if you, the more overweight or the poorer health you are, then that becomes more pronounced. And so, you know, absolutely, I think when we look at those hunter gatherers, they're walking eight miles a day. Uh -huh. um, they're actually sedentary for a larger portion than what we would think, but they do have these periods of of an hour, sometimes two, where they're quite vigorously active, whether that's climbing trees to get you know, honey or, or hunting or whatever it might be. And so that, yeah, that idea of polarized, I think really works well. Um, and it also works well in the, our ability to embed that into our day, because I think for a lot of people, we don't want to feel like everything is, and this obviously with this podcast and a lot of our groups, exercise does feel great and people love to do it, but there's a huge swath of the population that that feels just like extra homework. You know, it's like an extra thing on their to-do list. It's adding more stress to say, I need to get exercise. When really you can also say, okay, well, I want you to walk 20 minutes in that direction, get your coffee and walk 20 minutes home. You know, you can call it <laughs> something else, but you're still achieving that outcome that we're after, right? I can't remember who did the research, but that it's around this idea of the active couch potato. We get the people who train for an hour in the morning, but then because they've done that, it's almost like, well, I've done my exercise now, so therefore I can <laughs> afford to sit at my desk all day. And in the meantime, the sedentary the people they would consider to be their sedentary colleagues are just shuffling around going from this floor to that floor going to get the coffee but when they've summed it up throughout the day 
the sedentary, the people you would consider to be the sedentary colleagues that don't work out actually do more exercise accumulated than the mm-hmm. people who work out in the morning. And the fact that they're adding little bits together has all sorts of other side impacts on, you know, cholesterol clearance and things that happen in your cardiovascular system and in your yeah. blood system. So, um, and, and then I think, again, the Hadza tribe, they worked out that there was a maximum amount of calories that your body will burn in a day. And so you'll have done this is if you go out for a yeah. four hour walk, that's it. Then you come back, the grass is going to have to grow longer. The windows <laughs> are going to have to stay dirty because you're just going to sit on the couch and watch the ball game. Whereas if you're less active and in small amounts, you tend to accumulate more activity throughout the day. Um, yeah. I mean, embedding the, the best predictor of maintaining that healthy weight to your point, isn't actually what you do in the gym. It's, it's how much daily movement you get. Right. And so that idea of embedding things in your day, um, carrying your groceries home, you know, walking to, to work, cycling to work, parking further away, whatever it is that you can do to embed that, taking walking meetings, listening to podcasts as you walk, like these, we need to move a little bit more. Um, and, and you see a, you know, you see a gradual progression towards that, but unfortunately, again, with lockdown, you know, zoom's great and these things are great, but it's like, everyone's now sat down eight hours straight, right? There's not even any getting up to go to the water cooler or have a chat with your colleague. And so Mm. there was a, I posted one on my Instagram. It was this idea of working from home is great, but are we actually working from home or are we living at work? Right? Like, it's like, where where are these boundaries (laughs) now? Because now you're just, it's, it's all around you. And so that's again, back to this whole mindset piece of, because again, as we've seen through the lockdown, you know, mental stress and, and anxieties and all these things are definitely, you know, they were already on the rise, but now really, you know, a, a point of concern in the in the general population. Well, we can we can segue two things there. You've talked about movement, and uh, a, a well known connection for both of ours is Dr. Kelly Starrett, who wrote the book Supple Leopard, which my computer's balanced on right now to get a better <laughs> shot. Um, Kelly, Kelly cool. was on another leopard. Yeah, stiff, Kelly... stiff penguin in the four in the mid forties, but you got to get back to the supple. That's leopard. right. Kelly, Kelly was a guest on the show, and he was fabulous. And we we talked a lot about movement. And I also had a podcast with a, a gentleman called Shane Benzie. I don't know if you come across Shane. He's uh, he coaches running, but he calls himself a movement coach because his premise is that actually, if you want to run better and run faster, you need to move better first. You don't just need mm. to go and do intervals, which is a a great concept and just a different looking through a different lens, really. Yeah. The problem and um kelly's also written a book called stand up i think and uh mm-hmm. so i'm standing here at my i was in, i had a stand-up desk but i was inspired by kelly to get myself a, an anti-fatigue mat and try and spend as much of the day standing up and just moving around to different work yeah. positions which is something you mentioned in, in your book isn't it about sitting cross-legged lying down and doing some cobra stretches from time to time um, yeah i mean just getting on the floor like it's uh you know, we sit on the couch, unfortunately, in our chairs at the office and in, in the car we're sitting and then it's like, okay, it's time to relax. Now let's sit on the couch. And, you know, as you know, all of a sudden now hip flexors are getting tight. Um, hip rotators are getting tight. And now the low back's getting beaten up. The, the T-spine, the middle of the back's not moving the way it, it normally does. And this just makes it so much more likely for us to get injured when all when we don't have that capacity to move the way we need to. And so, you know, it is interesting how sitting cross-legged on the floor might feel really uncomfortable for most of us or a lot of us when we first start but you chip away at it and you know maybe it's just in the commercial breaks when you're watching your show and you're relaxing or whether you dedicate 10 or 15 minutes but if you actually do that Mm. you know you stand up now you feel a little bit lighter right you feel those joints start to feel a little bit better and it you know as as you get movement in those joints that synovial fluids moving around and starting to provide some nutrients to help to heal that joint and now 
once we start to feel a little bit better, hey, it's a heck of a lot easier to then say, now I feel like going out to do that training session or that run or that walk. Whereas if you're always dealing with chronic pain, you know, it impacts you from a movement ability side, but it also ends up impacting you from a mental standpoint because it just becomes mm. such a, a burden to have to deal with that every day. Well, even the act of sitting on the floor to start with, it's uncomfortable, which means that rather than what happens when you're sitting in your chair where you're in the same position for hours because it feels comfortable, you do actually have to move into a different position. You have to move into a kneeling position or mm. lying on your back or lying on your front or just standing up to stretch your legs. And so you are creating more movement. I feel like in my house now, um, I only have a, a sofa and an armchair for guests because I do, when I'm, if I am watching the telly, I tend to spend most of the time on the yoga mat. Yeah. Um, so I can either get rid of those, but then when my guests come around, they'll all have to, they'll all have to join me, and, yeah. and I'm not sure they'll be they'll yeah. be good with that one. There's moments we're sitting still good, but let's let's wrap up then, Mark, because I know you've got um, you've got a lot to do today. A uh, couple more things on on exercise: hot versus cold. That's popular. Wim Hof's got a lot to answer for, but there's been a big movement towards <laughs> yeah. cold water um, immersion and open water swimming through the winter recently, but um, yeah we don't need to go to those extremes, do we? We can just do uh, hot and cold showers alternating and, and just giving ourselves that exposure is, is good enough, really. Yeah. I mean, exposure to these kind of extremes is really, uh, you know, something that our bodies have been accustomed to for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. That's how we evolved. And so there's some really tremendous research, you know, Mike Tipton here in the South uh, West of the UK has done some tremendous research on those cold water immersions. And, and yeah, you do get this, you know, initial response, this adrenaline response where the heart rate goes up and the ventilation rate goes up and adrenaline goes up. Um, but it's amazing how for things like mood, it almost sort of rattles the nervous system into this thing of like the, you know, the, the fog and that funk that we're in, we can actually get a real lift from, from some of these exposures. And what they found is that when you repeat these exposures, and again, if you're lucky enough to live near a lake or, or a sea or whatnot, it gets a lot easier to just kind of jump in than it is to go in, in your bathtub or something, or if you have do it as a group with some friends. When you repeat those exposures, your heart rate actually doesn't go up as high and your ventilation rate doesn't go up as high. And so you, mm. you start to build this resilience, which they've now found has cross adaptations. So it actually helps you in other stressors in your life. And, and what I found with researching the book is that, you know, an easier place for a lot of people to start is, is hot water immersion, right? Which is, it's a lot nicer to go for a hot tub than it might be for a cold plunge. And when you look at the research around blood pressure, people who are really struggling with obesity, who, who need to improve blood sugar control. Mm. I mean, could you think of anything easier than sitting in a hot tub for 15 minutes and your blood sugar is getting better and your blood pressure is getting better. And it's so effective that they're using this now as an intervention for people who are, you know, un, you know, they're, they're unfit, so they can't exercise. And this is, you know, becoming more of the first line therapy mm. in order to then get people healthier, to get them moving. And so, you know, whatever aspect people want to do, and you can certainly do it with the showers. I mean, I think if you can get submerged in the water you'll probably amplify your your benefits but um but yeah it is amazing how it can really start to kind of shift even the mindset when we get these these real exposures particularly the cold one because it does almost sort of you know it does rattle that nervous system and 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 we we feel a different sensation than than what we normally would do well mindset was the final section of the book about traits and values and skills, your identities, human beings. So again, thinking a little bit about, about yourself, being reflective, I think, is something I will pick up from that. And again, it, it's like not just rolling through life without thinking about things and 
almost being reactive rather than proactive and taking control. And the first thing about taking control is what sort of person am I? You know, what, what's my mindset? How, how are these things built up? What can I do to change my environment? And then you talk about silence, you talk about nature. And I, I think that's something I've become really aware of in the last year is about how valuable it is to spend time in nature, not, not connected to your phone, not listening to music, just <laughs> enjoying listening to the lambs bleating or the birds singing in the morning or the running water, or even just leaves and twigs crunching under your feet. It's, there's an awful lot of research um, about how that has a positive impact on mental health and your sense of well-being. Hundred percent. I mean, that, that, that story around values is something that I think again in midlife we're starting to get a really good sense of ourselves, and we start mm-hmm. to reflect maybe on what we want. But oftentimes we don't take the time to really acknowledge what our values are, and the reason why that's important is our whole discussion here today has been around building habits. Well, it's if you know what your values are, you know where that north star is. It's much more obvious, especially to clients, when their behaviors are in opposition to their values, right? then we start to realize, okay, the things that I'm doing are pulling me away from where I want to get to. And that makes it so much easier for us to then start to embed the right habits and develop those habits. And so that's that's really that discussion around taking the time to, to appreciate our values and building some of those mindset skills, which help to orient us towards those values. And, you know, as, as we wrap up the book, you talked about nature and, you know, we start the book on this, this happiness and this mindset piece. Well, I think the easiest way, when you talk about all these mindset skills, there's positive self-talk. We talk about building mindfulness, optimism. There's just plenty of different methods and we go through some of them in the book. For me, there's almost nothing easier than this, what we call this new science of awe, which is getting yourself out into nature and having that, you know, that vast stimuli that actually provides you with these moments of, of levity and clarity. And the fascinating thing is that, you know, with happiness, there's, there's two components to that in science. There's life satisfaction, which is actually quite closely linked to, to our income. And then there's the subjective happiness, which is how happy we feel about our lives. And there are very few tools and strategies that impact both of those things in a positive way. And awe is one of those things. So just getting out into nature, go to, you know, getting out to a lake, a, a sea. But if you can't do those things, this is where it gets really interesting. This idea of dispositional awe a lady named Amy Gordon out at University of Cal Berkeley, just listening to a song that starts to put you in a headspace where you start reflecting or looking at some pictures when you, you know, you went traveling or listening to some type of, you know, a speech or pictures of travel on Instagram, instead of scrolling through your feed, these things can create these moments of dispositional awe. And if you can, if you can foster that now, all of a sudden we, we start to, you know, raise the playing field on the mindset standpoint, we have more, you know, positive thoughts, we start to push down a lot of that negative self-talk, that that negative loop we tend to get back onto. And now it's much easier for us again to build those habits, to, to get moving, to eat the right things. And so, you know, that's, and then the idea of silence, there's an explorer named Erling Kag, who's a, I think he's Norwegian explorer, and he's, he's been to the three poles. So North, South, and the top of Everest. And he spent 50 days, I think it was trekking across Antarctica in like minus 90, you know, ridiculous temperatures. And, you know, he obviously he didn't, didn't talk to anybody for 50 days and it was freezing cold and it's, you know, huge, huge physical and mental stressor. And when they asked him how he did it, he gives a great response, right? He says, I put one foot in front of the other and I did it enough times. 
It's like, you know, it's, it's so simple, mm-hmm. um, but so ruthlessly effective. And so, you know, that's really the crux of the whole story here is, is it doesn't need to be complicated. We can simplify things, but we just need to then build those habits to repeat them. And that's nice because then we get easy wins. We're not, you know, unfortunately in midlife, we're trying so hard and then we don't get the, we don't get the dividends. We don't get the payout that we're after. We need to start to flip that scenario and layer on smaller, smaller habits, get a bigger yield, right? Bigger effects in the back end, And then that will start to really shift that, that internal dialogue. We start to feel better, look better. And then we can just, you know, you just perform better in your life, which is ultimately the goal, right? Yeah. For me, the definitely the payoff is a bit like getting your pension. You keep putting a pound in every day and you get a nice pension at the end of it, right? But you mm. don't see an immediate effect. You might see the stock market goes up and down and the value of your pension goes up and down, but you never really get to benefit from the pension until you're in your mid to late 60s. And I think that's where the hard work in the 40s and 50s comes in is if you can look forward 20 years and have a vision of how you want yourself to be when you're 65 or 75 and start putting the pieces in place now, it's a lot easier than getting to 70 and trying to do it. Hundred um, percent, and even even the next day, though, like we can we could take the long view, which is terrific. But even I think you know, with people to say, hey, if we do this, even tomorrow morning can feel better, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is part of the story of when you're when you're really knee deep into a lot of this stress and lack of sleep and everything else. We, we've got to make tomorrow morning feel better as well. And I think that's the benefit is you're going to get the acute and that long term set yourself up for success. So speed reading through the book as i said i did but i think i came up with some things that are are like a bit of a strategy seems to start out with mindfulness we talked about that beginning we've looped back to the end about you know being aware of where you are in relation to your values and getting habits that get you back to your values and identity Um, keeping things simple developing habits which includes morning and evening routines. And again, some people might say, well, this is far too structured for me, but actually having that structure makes life a lot better. So it's worth the effort. Yeah. And and within that structure, there's a lot of rooms. That notion of in the book, we talk about master your morning. So get off to a good start. Yeah. Own your nights. Don't let things go too far off the rails in the evening. Mm. And if that's all you do, you'd be amazed. It's harder to go too far wrong in the middle of the day. Yeah. If that's all you do, get the morning right, get the evening right. And we also then talk about this third piece pillar, which is, you know, setting your protein. If you can start to, to adopt those fundamentals, it is amazing how you can really start to make progress without having to overhaul your life or make too many, you know, follow a strict regime. That would be like a journey, wouldn't it? Where you start off from here in the morning and you know, you've got to get there in the evening. When you've got those two points, it's difficult to take too many detours out of your way. That's it, um, right? In order to get to point B. So, you, you know, having a plan and then you talk about um, nutrition, eat whole foods, eat, eat more protein, maybe a bit more as you get older, smart choices, take a long-term versus short-term approach on exercise, lift weights. And to your point oh, there, does yeah. I'm just to circle back on that protein. I mean, just to give a little bit of granularity for listeners that 1.2 grams per kilogram per day is the number we're aiming for. And, and the reason for that, again, is the benefits for you acutely in terms of how you feel and weight loss and health. But also, you know, that's the number that as you get to 50, 60 and 70 helps to prevent osteopenia, sarcopenia. So this mm. loss of bone density and muscle mass. So if you, to your point earlier, if you build those habits in your mid thirties, forties, fifties, we don't have to start to try to build them out when you're 70. And now this is a potential problem, right? There is a bit of a myth that if you eat too much protein, it's bad for your kidneys, but I can't, um, there was some research, wasn't there? 
um, that showed that even if you ate four grams per kilogram of body weight for a period of two years, actually there were no real detrimental side effects on your health. So I don't think people yeah, you need can, to be too worried about consuming, just consuming a little bit too much protein. Um, more. People are so far away from the ceiling that they never have to worry about it. Yeah, There's just yeah. no chance they'll ever get to more than three grams per kilo. So it's no, no, it's that's right. Eating four grams per kilo per day is uh, pretty hard, isn't it? You're going to be 12 eating- Tupperwares with, with chicken breasts in them for the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the exercise, polarized training, high intensity is fine, but not maybe not quite as regularly in the week. Focus on your recovery as well. And increase the weights. I think, again, I think that's something people shy away from, but lifting weights, you know, definitely even if you can do 10 squats, body weight squats, that you mean, you're shifting your body weight there. I and mean, that's sort of 50, 60, 70, 80 kilos for some people that still requires strength. Start carrying your groceries home from the grocery store. Not only do you build strength, you start choosing more real food because it weighs a lot less than all those cans of soda <laughs> or beer or everything else. And so just by proxy, you start eating less things that weigh so much and more of the, the healthy, good stuff. Good. That's a good call. I've not heard that one before. So I think we're there. It's mostly about habits. It's about planning. It's about controlling what you can control. And, about and, yeah, and it starts with mindset. We got to just get that mindset in a spot so that we can have enough resilience to when we get to the roadblocks, because we're always going to get to roadblocks, we have that mindset in a space where we can then confront them. We can get over them. And then we can actually then, you know, really build those habits of that long-term success without getting into that cycle of trial and error that unfortunately too many people are still stuck in. Mm. So the book, people can get hold of it now. So the book's out uh, Thursday, May 20th. Uh, we also have a short form podcast called Peak 40, which has just launched, which is these shorter clips that provide you with actionable insights. Uh, and we've also got a, a weekly curated uh, newsletter called the Peak 40 Weekly, which again, gives you a bit more granular depth on this whole story around how to simplify things, you know, when life is is busy and hectic. Great. Well, we'll put all of those links into the show notes. And obviously you sent us some of your other links before for social media stuff and, and what have you. So anybody who wants to follow you, read about you, listen to you or anything else, they'll be able to find it in the show notes. So Dr. Bubbs, it, uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on again. And uh, I look forward to the next time we're chatting. Oh, always a pleasure, Simon. Appreciate it. I have to get you down here to the coast and get some training in as well. Certainly will. Okay. Take care, Mark and listeners. Thanks again for being here. We'll see you Take again care. next week. Bye-bye. Thank you to Mark for joining me for a second time on the High Performance Human Podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. Next up, I have two actions for you. I would really, really appreciate it if you enjoyed this podcast to please hop onto iTunes and leave a rating and more importantly, a review. Alternatively, or if you're feeling exceptionally generous, please could you go onto your favorite social media platform and share the podcast with as many friends as possible. Okay, that's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high-performance human in every aspect of your life.